morning, church. We're back uh, to First John. If you weren't here last week, we started a two-week mini-series, one sermon of biblical assurance of salvation. And so, Second um, Corinthians thirteen five says to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. And uh, last week, our main purpose uh, in this, and my main idea of of this sermon is uh, at the top of those notes, if you have them, uh, biblical assurance of salvation does not flow from a past decision or a prayer, but from the examination of one's enduring lifestyle in light of Scripture. Let me say that another way. Uh, The way that you know that you're in the faith and your assurance that you truly know Christ is not by you looking into the past to make sure that you checked off the boxes and you prayed the prayers and you walked through all the steps that the church told you to, and so you're good. Or like some people tell me, I done did that, preacher. I done did that. I don't, why do I need to do anything else? I done did that, and so I know. That's not how we examine ourselves. We don't look at a one-time experience in the past but we examine ourselves now looking for a present spiritual reality. Examining our lives by looking at what the Bible says, how a true believer should live. And by the way, these things that we're going through, these ten tests for us to examine ourselves, this is something that the Holy Spirit does within you. This is not something that you produce in and of your own flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is not, it's not something that you achieve by working hard for Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is something that you receive because Jesus is right now working hard for you. So we keep that in mind. Um, We're going through 1 John. Um, Let me review just the first five in case you weren't here last week and just to bring you up to speed and then we will... Uh, get started with uh, first uh, the rest of this message. Um, but if you would read with me First John chapter 5. I want to read this one more time. First John chapter 5. Verse 13. Just to remind you of why John wrote these words. First John 5 verse 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning in the name of your Son. And as Brad so clearly said, we desperately need your Holy Spirit to speak to us and to fill us with your presence. Lord, there are many people who struggle with doubt of whether they truly know Christ, partly because we have mishandled the gospel and we as proclaimers of the word have not told them the truth. Father, I pray that you would bring assurance for some encouragement that they truly know Christ if there is doubt 
And Lord, if there's some who don't know Jesus at all, I pray that your spirit will convict them of sin and bring them to Christ and create faith in their hearts that they may trust you. Would you speak through me now by your Holy Spirit and help me to proclaim your word faithfully and truthfully? In Jesus' name, amen. As we go through these, we've we found that there are several ways that we can examine ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. Let me go through the first five from last week just very quickly to remind you where we've come from and then, uh, then we'll move on. Um, the first test came from 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. The evidence that we were born again is that we will live in the light rather than to continue to walk in darkness. We talked about what it means to walk around. This doesn't mean that it's a, if you mess up or stumble in sin that you're not a Christian. This is more the idea of if they followed you around with a video camera and we saw the overall characteristics of your life, would your life be characterized more by sin or by holiness? Or is your life characterized more by seeking Christ or seeking your own pleasure? Are you walking around in the light, in truth, in righteousness? Or are you walking around in darkness and in error and unrighteousness? That's the first test. The second test is from 1 John 1 verse 9. That a true believer will live in constant confession of sin. Not just confessing all of your sins. Because the truth is you'll never be able to confess all the ways that you've sinned. Even today. But it's a confession of your own nature. That you by your nature are radically depraved and God hating. And if God were to leave you alone by yourself you would never come to him. And you need him. And and we've already confessed our sin this morning. When you got up out of your seat and you came to this table, you confessed your sinful nature and your need for a Savior. And so a true believer is going to be confessing sin and recognizing their unrighteous, sinful state before God. The third test comes from chapter 2, verses 3 and verse 6. If we love Christ, we will keep his commandments. Your desire is going to be to obey God. Jesus, to walk as Jesus walked, not perfectly, but when people look at you, do they look at you and say, man, that guy, he stumbles a lot and he messes up a lot, but the greatest desire of his heart is to walk like Jesus walked. Is that true about you? That's the third test. Number four, we talked about Christians should not love the world systems, values, possessions, or desires. This is from chapter 2, verse 15. Do you love the things of the world? And that's not just about loving possessions. It's not just about the desire for money. Do you have a lust for power? Do you have a lust for pleasure? There can be many things that draw our affections away from Christ. This was the fourth test. The fifth test comes from chapter 2 verse 19 where John says that there were many who were with us for a while, but they left us. And the reason that they left the people of God is because they never were with us. John calls these people antichrists. And so the fifth test is that true believers will endure faithfully until the end. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew. He who endures to the end will be saved. And we endure By continuing in fellowship with a local church. And my definition of a local church is where the gospel is preached. 
It's where God is worshipped. The Trinitarian God worshipped in spirit and in truth. It's where the sacraments are administered, like baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it's where the church is involved in local and global evangelism and discipleship. And this is something I didn't say last week, and I need to say it now. You do not endure to the end by your own strength. If you seek the end in your own flesh, you're going to fail and you're going to fall. We persevere to the end because He preserves us by His Spirit. Don't miss that. Philippians 1 verse 6 is clear. That He who began a good work in you will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. God finishes what He starts. And so our job is to do, as Hebrews tells us, to look to Jesus Not being entangled by the sin which ensnares us, but to look to Jesus because He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the beginner and the ender. He's the perfecter of our faith. What He starts, He finishes. And no one who trusts in Him will be able to be snatched from His hand. This is good for us. Your assurance does not come in your strength to persevere, but it comes in His power to preserve you. Don't forget that. He is working in you and he is not finished yet. And so if you're looking at these tests and you're looking at these things and you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm messed up. I'm not doing well at these at all. Are you looking to Christ? Because he's not finished with you yet. He's not. And so that brings us to the sixth test of First John. And by the way, there are many more that we have not come to. But we want to look at these ten. Number six. Let's go to chapter three, verse six. 1 John three, verse six. And I love how plain John talks. He constantly says, I'm writing to you little children. This is some of the easiest Greek to translate. I love translating John because he uses easy kindergarten words, right? Light, darkness. I can handle that, okay? Listen to how clearly he speaks to us in 1 John 3, verse 6. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now, if you're like me, the first time you read this verse, you thought, I'm not a Christian because I'm still sinning, right? I'm messed up. I'm still doing stuff I'm not supposed to be doing. This can be a very scary verse if we don't interpret it properly. You could easily read this and say, if you keep on sinning, you're of the devil. We're all of the devil, right? is Is that what it means? No. Test number six, no Christian 
can continue making a practice of habitual, willful sin and not continue to make growing strides in holiness. This is not about perfection. John's talking more about progression. Big difference. It's not about perfection. It's more about progression. When I was a young guy, I'm talking about two years old, and I was learning to walk when I first took my first steps. My dad was, and my mom, they're in the living room, and they're watching me, and you know, they, 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 put, you, they put a little two-year-old up and tell him to walk, and he's, I'm standing there, and every two-year-old at the time, their head is three times as big as their body, and so they don't have a choice, but eventually when their head starts to lean over, you have the choice of either sticking your foot out or falling on your face, right? And so my, my parents said, okay, Josh, come to me, come to me. And, and I'm looking there, and that was basketball head with these tiny little legs, and I'm like, okay, here I come. And I take one step, and then I fall over on my face. And you know what my, my dad did not do when that happened? He didn't look at my mom and say, can you believe that? One step. Listen, pilgrims on the pilgrim side, when we're two, we walk, right? That's on your side, right? Can you believe that one step? How embarrassing. He should be walking by now. I can't believe he took one step. I can't believe this. This is ridiculous. My son, two years old, can't even walk yet. That's not what they did. You know what they did? This is the 1980s, remember? Come on, Josh. Bam! He took a step! Get the camera, right? Here, here he is. Look at him. He's walking. Pick him up. Let him do it again. Let him fall on his face again. He took two steps. Pick him up. Do it again. Everybody, come here and watch this. Look, he's... he's, he's I don't know what kind of camera y'all had, but my, my parents had the big thing they stuck on their shoulder, right? And you can't even look through it because it weighed 50 pounds. All right. That's what they filmed me with. But they wanted everybody to know, my son walked. He took a step. He's growing. Sometimes I think we have the view of God that he's up in heaven looking at you and waiting for you to stumble. And when you fall, he looks at you and says, gosh, I can't believe he did that. How dare him sin? How dare him stumble? I can't believe he fell. Angels, did you see that? He fell. That's the view of God, I think, that sometimes we get in our minds. And yet God treats us as little children. He knows you're going to sin. Deep breath. Exhale. It's okay. Like he, he knows you're going to struggle with sin. You're fallen in your flesh. God is not angry at... I mean, sin obviously separates us from God and, and it's a disappointment. But when we make some growing stride, one step in holiness, one step in obedience, He celebrates that because it's not perfection that's the issue. It's progression. Are you growing in your faith? Are you growing? Are you still struggling in the same way with the same sin that you were struggling with five years ago? Or have you grown in maturity? Have you progressed? 
I think if we were honest with ourselves, if you're truly in the faith, you're going you're gonna to grow in faith and you're going to grow in maturity. And you're not going to do the exact same things you did five or ten years ago or even a year ago. Hopefully you're, you're maturing and you're progressing. And this isn't something that you do on your own. Let me say it again. This is what the Holy Spirit does through you. He is maturing you. He is conforming you more and more into the image of His Son. And this is a process. It's going to take a while. And it's not even going to be finished until the day you die. And you get to be with Jesus. And it says that we will be like Him when we see Him as He is. But until that time, you're growing. And what John is talking about is if you continue in the same habitual sin and you continue to make a practice of sinning over and over and over and over again and there's no desire to change, there's no repentance, there's, there's no struggle, red flag ought to go up because you may not be in the faith. Verse 9 is clear that if God's seed abides in us, we cannot keep on sinning. You're unable to. And the reason you're unable to is because God is going to discipline those whom He loves. And He is not going to let you continue on in willful disobedience if you belong to Him. He loves you too much to do that. There's a big difference in struggling with sin and reveling in it. And the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, I think, is that a non-Christian does not struggle with their sin. They love it. They love their sin. They don't want to stop. They don't even know what they're doing is wrong. But a believer, just try to disobey. And try to keep living in disobedience. The Spirit of God is going to whip you so bad. And if, you, if you've been, if, how many of you know what I'm talking about, right? You, you just think, all right, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to, I know the Lord wants me to, but I'm not. And you try to walk away. And for the next week, man, you're just getting hammered by the Lord because you know you disobeyed. And you're like, okay, I need to obey that, right? He doesn't just let you go. You can't continue in the same willful, habitual sin without God gripping your heart and saying, that's not how you're going to live. I'm not going to let you. You're going to be miserable in your sin until you repent. And that is not something that God does to be mean to you. He does it to be merciful. It's a good thing that our Father loves His children to discipline them. And so, are you growing? Are you growing in the faith? Hopefully, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've grown in the faith and, and maybe you're not struggling with the same things that you used to. Sometimes some sin may leave us forever and you'll never struggle with it again after you become a Christian. Other things you're going to struggle with the rest of your life because God's going to keep you dependent upon Him. But there is some sense in our Christian life where we are progressing in holiness and we're growing in godliness because the Lord is conforming us more and more to the image of Jesus. That's a good thing. It's a gift of grace. And it is a true sign that you are in the faith. Test number seven. Let's go to chapter three, verse 14. Chapter three, verse 14. It says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 
Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verse 16. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I know that the chapters and verses are not inspired in the Bible. They were added later. But don't you think it's so wonderful that both John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16 both refer to Jesus laying down his life for us. And so the seventh test that John says is in the same way that Christ laid down his life for us, that is the picture of how believers should love one another. So verse or, or test number seven, true believers will not only enjoy fellowship with other Christians, but they will also love them even to the point of death. First question is, do you love the brothers? And this isn't just loving the men in the church, right? And it's not just about loving everybody in the world. John is specific when he says, if you are truly in the faith, you will love the brothers, the brethren. He's talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Like it's true, we should love those who are not believers. We should love non-Christians. But there should be a special, intimate love between the people of God that cannot be explained by anyone in the world. This is true if you've ever been on an airplane. I've been on trips before on an airplane and I'll sit next to somebody who might be from another country. Might be a, an Asian man or, or might be someone from Russia or South America and you sit next to them and you've never met them before in your life and I'm talking to them and within five minutes I realize this person's a Christian. Bam! They're alive, right? There's something different about this person. And within five minutes of having a conversation with this total stranger, I love them. Because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in both of us. And there is something that I share with this person that I do not share with my own uncle or aunt that may not know Jesus. Do you love the brothers? Do you love believers? Now... Let's just be real. Sometimes it's hard to love people even in the community of faith, right? It's just like your own family. I love my siblings. That doesn't mean that we never fought, right? But we still loved one another. There's going to be some internal struggle in the community of faith because we're still sinners, right? But there has to be this self-sacrificing love. One of the, one of the ways I've heard this explained is um, some people use the... The illustration that Jesus said um, when, when he told the story that if you've done these to the least of these, you've done it unto me. If you visited me while I was in prison, you brought me clothing, you brought me water. But that verse is used oftentimes for prison ministries. And there's nothing wrong with prison ministries. We should minister to prisoners and things. But if we take that and, and apply it to this verse, here's the, here's the example that John is using for us to understand to what extent should we love one another. Let's just say that we're meeting in a communist country. And we're here and nobody else knows that we're worshiping this morning. And it's illegal. Well, some people find out that, 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 that we're meeting together. And that the officials, the authorities come. And they arrest me because I'm, I'm preaching. And, and so they take me to jail. And they threaten every single one of you. And say, if we catch you doing the same thing, we'll come and get you too. 
Well, then they take me to prison and, and prison in, in this country may not be very nice. And so they're not going to give me the necessities that I need, like food and water and clothing. And so if I don't get those things, I'm going to die. And so Mitch says, you know what? Josh is my brother. I, I love him and I've, I've got to lay down my life for him. And so he takes food and clothing and water and he brings it to the prison and he gives it to me. But what do you think is going to happen when he shows up helping me out, giving me supplies? They're going to arrest him too. And then it's going to be me and Mitch sitting in the prison staring at each other, hoping that one of you is going to come and help us out. And then Brad says, you know what, man, those guys are my brothers. I love them too much to let them, to leave them there. I've got to bring them stuff. And so he goes. And then there's three of us. And after every single one of you has been arrested for coming to help out the people of faith, the last one of you that's left, knowing that it could mean your life and that if you go and get arrested, no one's going to come help after you, you still say, I've got to go lay, lay down my life for my brothers and sisters. I can't leave them there alone. And you bring them the things that they need. This is the picture of loving our brothers even to the point of death. We lay down our lives for one another as Christ laid down his life for us. And that may not mean that you have to physically die for someone in this church. But it is going to mean that you have to love them self-sacrificially, putting your needs behind their needs. And whatever that looks like. He who has ears, let him hear. Let the Spirit speak to you in that way. I don't know. There's going to be some way in this church where you have to lay down your needs and your desires and things you want and your the things that you want and, and put those aside for someone else and love them self-sacrificially. That's the thing that John's saying. And if you don't want to do that, a person who lives selfishly, a person who's always thinking about themselves, John says that person is of the devil. They're not of Christ. That's test number seven. Test number eight. Christians, let's, let's look at verse, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 17. Let me read this. Chapter 3, verse 17. If anyone has the world's goods... And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? This is very simple. Number eight. Christians should have compassion for the poor. That is demonstrated by sacrificial giving of their own resources. This, this expresses itself in, in several different ways. It may not just be the poor who don't have a lot of money. I love the fact that this church uh, has a great passion for adoption. Um, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. The poor is not just people who don't have enough money. It might be people who don't have moms and dads. It might be people who don't have much of anything. They don't have any type of relationship. And they need someone to come alongside of them and supply their needs. I remember a couple of years ago, my, my sister, she was... She's a sophomore this year at the University of West Georgia. And I remember last year she was wanting to join a sorority. And uh, she was wanting to find a godly sorority with, with a lot of Christian girls. And it was going to cost a lot of money. If, if you're in a sorority or fraternity, you know those things can be expensive. And, and so my parents were talking with her through that whole process about, you know, should I join? Should I get in a sorority? What should I do? And... And I remember at, at, the, at a camp that we were at that summer, 
she had heard a presentation from Compassion International. And my sister that year decided that she was going to use the money that she had saved up to, to, to join a sorority and bypass that and use that money to adopt a child from Compassion International. And I thought, yes, right? That's cool. Right? That's, that's sacrificing what you want. And, to, and Compassion's a great ministry and, and a great thing to adopt children to finance their needs and to provide food and water and, and clothing and, and education for them. My wife and I, uh, Jenny's been sponsoring a child from Compassion for the last four years. We just read a letter from her last week. It's a great thing to do. Do you have a compassion for those who are struggling? And it's, it's not just the poor in general. John's still talking about the community of faith. We should care for the poor of the world, but even more so, we should care for those who are believers who are struggling throughout the entire world. And I'm so thankful for this church and the way that we give so generously to those who are in need and those who are in ministry all throughout the world. Do you have compassion for the poor? Or are you stingy with your money and your resources? A compassionate person is one who is in the faith where the Spirit of God has changed your heart so that you're not holding on to the things of this world. You're giving them away freely. Look at your resources. I forget who said this, but one of the best ways to know where, where you are with God is to look at your, your, your checkbook from the last month and see where all of your money is going. Just something to examine ourselves and say, am I spending an exorbitant amount of money on myself and how much of it is actually going out to other people? I need to think through that, I think. That's number eight. Number nine, chapter four, verse six. We're not looking at all of these, but I want to point out ten of them. This is the ninth one, chapter four, verse six. John says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is a real simple one. Number nine, true Christians will love to hear the gospel proclaimed and God's word taught. John says in that verse, we're from God. We belong to God. We're born of God. And if you truly know God, you're going to listen to our message. You're going to listen to the people who have been ordained by God to proclaim the good news. You're going to listen to those people. And if you're not from God, you're not going to listen. One of the true, one of the true signs that you're in the faith this morning is that you get great pleasure from hearing the gospel preached week in and week out. And you come to church with a hunger and a desire to know God through His Word, through preaching and through worship. I loved what Brad said earlier about honey. This is a great illustration about not just knowing about God, but tasting and experiencing Him. The psalmist says that the Word of God is sweet to my lips like honey. But it was Charles Spurgeon who said, a dead man can't taste honey. Spiritually dead people have no taste buds for the Word. They have no sensitivities on their tongue for the gospel. It's bland to them. 
It's boring to do. When you read scripture and when you hear the gospel preached, is your heart stirred? Is there passion when you hear when you hear somebody stand up and say, yes, that is true. That is good. We need to hear that. Thank you. That, thank you for preaching the word. I need to hear that, please. And I'm going to come back next Sunday and I'm going to hear it again and again and again and again because I need this word. The word of God is sweet to the taste. It is like honey to my lips. Is it boring to you? Is it bland? One of the reasons that it might be boring to you is that you may not know the Lord. You may not know the author of the book. You don't just create this desire in your heart. This is something that that God's doing is He's transforming you. When you know God more, you're going to want to know His Word and you want to hear it preached. But there's a lot of people who come to church every Sunday and that's the sleepiest hour of the week, right? He was come bored like, I mean, I had a, a friend of mine and he preaches all over the country. And he said one morning he preached and this man on the front row opened up his newspaper and started reading the newspaper. True story, reading his newspaper while he's preaching. And apparently the dad passed it on to his son because the son's sitting there doing a crossword puzzle. You know, he's just following in his father's footsteps. And my friend said he was just trying to get over there to spit on him just to see if he could get his attention. And this was one of the, the deacons of the church, right? This guy was in leadership and just, it's what he did every Sunday, bored. Don't be like that. I hope I don't have to say that. Don't be like that. I will spit on you, right? Probably not intentionally, but do you love to hear the gospel? Just a, a few weeks ago, uh, Michael did such a great job explaining the gospel and reminding us that we need to hear it. It's not something that you get beyond the gospel. It's not it's not the 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 next step in your Christian growth. It's not where you try to get to so you can go higher and better or deeper with Jesus. You're never going to get beyond anything more deep and more uh, theologically grand as the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is the foundation upon which everything you do in your life, how you live, how you learn, how you speak, it influences everything. And I'm so grateful that every time I come to this church, I'm reminded of the gospel. I'm reminded of my sin and that Christ died for sinners and that if I will repent and believe, he will take my wrath away from me and he's put it on himself and he doesn't count my sin against me anymore. I need to hear that every single week. Because if you're like me, you probably have the propensity to forget. I tend to forget how much I really need Jesus because I get really confident in my flesh. We need to hear the gospel. Do you love to hear scripture preached? And one thing for preachers, I have to, ch- I have to remind myself of, this is another struggle. Do you get jealous when someone else is preaching a good message? And you wish, man, I wish I would have preached that. Wish I could have thought about that. That's one that... As I think as ministers, I struggle with. Your desire shouldn't be to be the one up here saying these great things, to say these true things. You ought to be glad when anybody's getting up and preaching it. I, I, I want, it, 
I don't, I don't care who it is, if they're on television or if they're just some backwoods guy who's just being faithful to the word or if it's somebody here, I don't care who it is. Preach the word, man. Tell me the truth. I need to hear it. And I don't care who it is, whether, whether it's me getting the praise or not. I don't need that. That's not even the whole point of preaching. It is so that people will see the greatness and the glory of God in this message of the gospel. And we ought to be glad who's preaching it no matter who it is. That was for me, all right? Number 10. Last one. Chapter 4, verse 13. Oh, and by the way, go, go back to number 9. I love the song that we sang uh, earlier about the story. There was a verse in there that reminded me of that. Uh, I love to tell the story for those who know it best are hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. There's a reason that verse is in there. Okay, or that song. Okay, I'm done. Number 10. Verse, chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. Verse 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. Number 10, and there's a lot here that we don't have time to go into, but true believers will be filled with the Holy Spirit and the result of that filling of the Holy Spirit will result in proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. There was a lot of heresy going on in this time of 1 John, a lot of heresy where people denied that Jesus was truly the Son of God, that He was merely a man. Or that there was a point in which he was created. This would be called modalism. That, that there was a point in time when it, it was only the father. And that the father became the son. Or, or that the father created the son. Any of those things that don't confess Jesus as the eternal. Co-eternal with the father. Son of God. Equally divine with the father. You're not a believer. A true believer is going to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Truly God. Co-eternal with God. Co-equal with God. And so there's a few things we need to talk about that the Spirit does for us. And this is one of the greatest ways to know that you're in the faith. If you have the Holy Spirit. I'm so glad we've already talked about this. Why do we need the Spirit? There's four things and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these. These are from John chapter 16. The Gospel of John, I'll read this really quickly for you. John 16, verse 7. This is Jesus telling his disciples before he left the earth. He's speaking to them and he says, John 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. 
I've listed four things here in your notes. Ways that the Spirit confirms that we know Christ. Works that the Spirit of God does for us. First, the Spirit convicts of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. He is going to convict you of sin. He's going to discipline you. He's going to remind you of sin. But don't forget that the Spirit doesn't just convict you of your sin. He'll convict you of your righteousness too. And the righteousness of Jesus. We focus a lot about the conviction of sin. But the Spirit convicts us of righteousness. Don't forget that. He convicts us of the righteousness of God. And I believe He convicts us of the righteousness that we have in Jesus. That we've received by faith. He convicts us of the judgment to come. He reminds us that there is a judgment coming. This is what the Spirit does for non-believers as well. Convicting them of sin so that they'll see a need to repent. He convicts us of sin. Secondly, the Spirit of God confirms in our hearts that we know God. He confirms in our hearts that we know God. This is back in 1 John. The Spirit confirms that we know God. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 24 of 1 John, it says, Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. It's the Spirit who's going to confirm. It's the Spirit this morning that as you hear this message and you hear this and you're testing yourselves and examining yourselves, it's the Spirit of God that's going to confirm, yes, I know Christ. There's evidence in my life that I know Jesus. I have no need to fear. He has redeemed me. He he has sanctified me. He has set me apart. He's changing me. I'm different because Christ has done a great work in my heart and I know it because the Spirit of God has confirmed it. The reason we know is because the Spirit, He's not going to leave you in the dark. He's not going to leave you guessing. One of the things the Spirit does is to confirm to you that you truly know Jesus. Or He may confirm that you don't know Jesus. He convicts of sin. He confirms that we know God. The third thing the Spirit does is He guides us in the truth. He guides believers in the truth. This is what John told his disciples. When the Spirit comes, when He comes... It's not an it, it's a he, it's a person. When he comes, he's going to lead you in the truth. And so what I hope this morning is, as you're hearing me or whoever stands up here to preach, one of the reasons that you know that what we say is true is because the Spirit confirms it. The Spirit guides you in truth. And that's why sometimes you hear a guy preach and you're like, okay, yeah, you nod your head, I'm following this, this is true. And it's the same reason why when you watch some, some, some people on TBN or on television and you get so angry because you want to throw something to the TV because you say, that's not true. One of the ways I get pumped up to preach in the morning is I just turn on the TV and watch TBN in the morning. It'll fire you up, right? Because all the garbage being preached. Which should be a reminder to us, the only reason that you can read this book and know that what it says is true, it's not because you're more smart or more spiritual than anybody else. It's because the Spirit of God has revealed truth to you. Otherwise, you would be blind to it. It's the Spirit who gives us insight. It's the Spirit who teaches us. And the last thing that the Spirit does, this is back in John chapter 16, is the Spirit glorifies Jesus Christ. If you're filled with the Spirit, your life is going to glorify Jesus because the Spirit's number one priority is to make Jesus known. So do you live your life to make yourself known, to make your name great, to reach the top, to be famous? 
are you seeking to make Jesus known? Who's the star? Who stands in the spotlight of your life? The Spirit will glorify Jesus through you. And it's the Spirit that helps us to worship Jesus and glorify Him in our worship. It's why we worship in spirit and in truth. We need the Spirit to truly glorify God in our worship. And the result of being filled with the Spirit is that you will confess and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. I have a question that I wrote down at the bottom of my notes. Just, and this is, this is just a simple question to ask, not for you to answer out loud. But when is the last time you told someone else about your relationship with Jesus and about the gospel without them having to ask you first? That's convicting for me. But one of the results of you being filled with the Spirit is that you're going to be proclaiming Jesus is Lord. And that's the test. Examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? If you're not in the faith, if maybe this morning you realize I'm lost, I I failed every one of these, there is no evidence at all that Jesus has saved me, that I'm born again. Let me tell you what not to do. Don't take these notes home and say, okay, I, I need to start doing this better. I guess I need to start giving more money to the poor so God will love me. I guess maybe I should, uh, I should um, go visit people in prison and, and God's going to love me more. I'll, I'll try to act better and Jesus will love me. Maybe I'll go to heaven if, and I'll feel better if I start trying to be a better person. If you do that, you will be lost. And you will die and be punished for your own self-righteousness. Don't do that, please. Hear this. This test is not meant for you for behavior modification, for you to go and be better. It's for you to realize how much you really need Jesus and to repent and believe in Him. So if you are an unbeliever this morning and there is no evidence of faith in your life, no evidence of being born again, then look to Jesus, repent of your sin, and believe in Him and trust Him and keep looking unto Him. And if you're a believer this morning... And you've looked at this and you've said, wow, the Lord's really done a great work in my life. And I have assurance and I know based on this test that I know Christ. Guess what you should do? Repent and keep looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Because the evidence that you're born again is not that you repented and then did that a long time ago. It's that you're still repenting and believing today. I'll finish with this. I had a, I had a young girl after a, after a, at a, at a, it was a student night at the church one night when I was sharing the gospel. And I had this eight or nine year old girl come and made a confession of faith, made a profession that she, she wanted to know Jesus and wanted to be born again, wanted to have eternal life and all these things. God was working in her heart. It just, there was evidence there that the Spirit was convicting her of sin and there was brokenness. And, and that's not all the signs that a person's in the faith, but it, it's, a, it's a good sign that, that the Lord's stirring in them. And, I told this little girl, we'll, just, we'll call her Sarah. I said, Sarah, do you know um, what makes a person a Christian? And she wasn't quite sure. And, and, and she just said, I, I just know that, I'm, I just know that I've, I've sinned and, and I need to be forgiven. I said, that's a good start. But I, I said, if I were to ask you today, why... Why, will, why are you saved? Why are you a Christian? And why will you go to heaven when you die? You know what you need to say? Don't you ever say because some preacher told me so. And don't you ever say it's because there was some time in the past 
when, uh, when, when I, I did these things and I prayed some prayer and I did that. Don't let that be the reason. Sarah, listen to me. As a nine-year-old, the reason that you are in the faith is that you right now are repenting of your sin and you're confessing by faith that Jesus is Lord. And I said, Sarah, we're going to get older one day. You're, you're going to want to have children. And if your children come to you and you're a 30-year-old woman and they say, uh, Mom, how, how do you know that you're a Christian? How do you know that, 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 that Jesus has saved you? You better not tell your kids. There was a time when I was eight years old when some preacher told me that I was in the faith. You better tell your kids at that moment, right now, I am presently repenting of my sin and I'm confessing Jesus is Lord by faith. I'm trusting in Him and Him alone to save me from the wrath to come. I said, Sarah, when you get to be 90 years old, all right, and you're on your deathbed and I come to visit you in the hospital because I'm going to be about 125 by then. When, you, when I come visit you at 90 years old on your deathbed and I come to visit you and I say, Sarah, you're about to leave this earth. How do you know that you're in the faith? How do you know that... that that you are, what's going to happen to you after you die? You better not look back at your eight-year-old experience and say, well, it was because of that, that one thing that happened. The evidence as a 90-year-old that you're in the faith is that I repented then, I repented in my 30s, and I'm still repenting of sin, and I'm confessing my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that will never change. If you have a new relationship with God, you're going to have a new relationship with sin. And your relationship with Christ is going to be a present reality. And every day you remind yourself of the gospel and how much you need Him and Him alone. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your Word and and thank You for the book of 1 John. Lord, my goal this morning is not to cause doubt. It's not to try to stir people up emotionally to generate some response. Lord, only you can save. Only you can bring people to repentance. Father, my goal this morning is encouragement. And I pray that your spirit will confirm in many people's hearts who have struggled with doubt that they truly know Christ based on the examination of their life, and they see evidence and fruit. And if that's true for them, I pray that you will glorify yourselves in worship this morning, that they will sing with great joy and great praise and great adoration of you, the one who has saved them from the wrath to come. But Lord, I realize there may be someone here who who may not be in the faith, and they've examined themselves and And they've realized that there's never been any spirit work in their life. There's no evidence. There's no fruit. Nothing at all. And a red flag has gone up in their heart. I pray for them, Holy Spirit, that you will convict them of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. I pray that you'll bring them to repentance and give them faith to believe in Jesus to take away their sin and to forgive them and to cleanse them from all unrighteousness. Spirit, help us to glorify Jesus in our worship now. In Jesus' name, amen.